0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Halley Mahold is the program's director for Western Landowners Alliance, a landowner-led group that advances policies and practices that sustain working lands, connected landscapes, and native species. At WLA, Halley manages people and strategy to support private stewardship across the West. Halley currently serves on the advisory board of Colorado State University's Center for Collaborative Conservation and is vice president on the board of directors for Central Colorado Conservancy. We talked all about the reintroduction of gray wolves to Colorado. From the original ballot initiative that set it into motion, to the various arguments from both sides, to the management implications. It's a complex issue that will require a whole lot of cooperation and experimentation. Lucky for us, Halley is on the stakeholder advisory group that's helping navigate all this. We also touched on public land cattle grazing, which Hallie shared some good insight into, It's something I want to understand a little better and maybe cover on the podcast more fully in the future. Finally, we discussed a few of WLA's various programs, which include their Habitat Lease Partnership, the Working Wild Challenge, and Women in Ranching. You can learn more about all these things at westernlandowners.org. They also have a beautiful print publication called On Land, as well as a podcast under the same name. Thanks to Hallie for sharing your time and knowledge, and thank you all for listening. A reminder that podcast merch is still available for 20% off using the promo code DOGDAYS20 at checkout. Here's episode 34. Okay, I'm sitting down with Hallie Mahold of Western Landowners Alliance. Hallie, what's going on?
1: Hi, Dylan. How are you doing today?
0: Hey, I'm great. I'm so glad we were able to get together.
1: Yes, me too. Um, Between... Kid schedules and COVID and work. Uh, took a little while to get together, but glad to be here today.
0: I'm with you. It is a busy season and you have a lot on your mind right now. You're in the thick of it here with Wolf Reintroduction, which is one of the things I really hope to cover a lot of today, but uh, you're on the Stakeholder Advisory Board, right?
1: Yeah, the stakeholder advisory group, um, it was convened by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And we actually had our last meeting just in August, we met um, over the last 15 months across the state, working as a group, there's 17 of us that were selected to advise on um, the wolf reintroduction and management plan here in Colorado.
0: They pay you for all that work?
1: Um, (laughs) Nope. It was (laughs) a a volunteer position um, and and it was uh, competitive and and we all applied to do it. Yep.
0: (laughs) Cool. Well, it's important work.
1: Yes. Um,
0: What uh, I guess if you could kind of talk about a little bit about your background and, and what qualified you to take part in that.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I've been with the Western Landowners Alliance for about eight years, and we're a landowner-led, west-wide organization. Um, We focus on advancing practices and policies that sustain working lands, connected landscapes, and native species. So we're landowner-led and founded, and we work across the west. And one of the programs at the Western Landowners Alliance we call the Working Wild Challenge Program, And, um, that's really a landowner led effort where we recognize the importance of landscapes to support both people and wildlife, but we also recognize that that comes with some challenges. And so, um, I oversee a program of work that's focused a lot in the Northern Rockies, um, working with landowners, um, to reduce conflicts between livestock and primarily grizzly bears and wolves. And so when this opportunity came up in Colorado, um, the, Proposition 114 passed, and it became clear that wolves would be reintroduced in Colorado by 2023, um, and Colorado parks and wildlife was putting together the stakeholder advisory group. My hope was to be able to, um, be part of the group and kind of bring, a landowner voice to the, to the topics, to the management, and also some experience from working in States where wolves, um, are already on the ground.
0: Yeah. Let's uh, let's give a little bit of a primer on the on Prop One Fourteen and how that passed, how it was put forward. I mean, what happened?
1: Yeah, so Proposition One Fourteen was a ballot initiative in twenty twenty. Um, I would say it was you know put together by groups that wanted wolves reintroduced into Colorado. Um, at the time, actually, wolves had been delisted from the endangered species list federally. Um, And so it was put forth as a ballot initiative to reintroduce wolves and as part of that, restore them to a self-sustaining population. Um, It also had within that ballot initiative, the need to compensate livestock producers for losses. Um, And it passed I probably shouldn't quote me exactly on the number, but it was something like 51% to 49%. So wow. a close ballot initiative, but it did pass, which then made it a state mandate for parks and wildlife to move forward with wolf introduction.
0: I came to Colorado about the time at when it passed. And uh, since then, I've been trying to educate myself and understand what's going on, who voted for it, who didn't. Um, what it really means. And I guess as someone who represents landowners, I'm interested to get your point of view on um, the votes, because what you always hear is, oh, it passed because the front range urban populations, you know, Denver and Fort Collins and, and Colorado Springs are, you know, more blue counties passed it. And everyone on the Western Slope, all these ranchers were opposed to it. I think that's probably an oversimplification, right?
1: yeah i would say it's an oversimplification i mean if you look at the county maps on who voted for and against it certainly is um primarily kind of the front range urban counties but there were some in the southwest that also voted and passed at the county level um i do think it is more complex um for example there's this idea that if you voted against it it means you hate wolves or you hate wildlife or you're against Mm. that um there were people who who voted against it because, um, because they're concerned about their livelihood, whether that's their hunting and outfitting operation, whether that's their livestock. Um, there were people who voted against it because in the proposition, it said that wolves would be reintroduced west of the continental divide, which they felt like was essentially putting wolves in these rural communities on the Western slope and intentionally you know, not putting them you know, east of the divide where there's more urban areas. And so I think there's been, you know, there were certainly social reasons, um, economic reasons, as well as it. So I think, and I would say there are, you know, there certainly would be some landowners and ranchers that may have voted for it. But I think in the end, it was less about, you know, do you like wolves and more about should wolves be reintroduced? I think the other thing that came up was whether or not, you know, reintroduction and management of a wildlife species should be on a ballot if it should mm. be an issue that people voted on. And so I also think some people um, may have voted against it because they don't believe that it's coined as kind of ballot box biology. And there were some concerns around that. As uh-huh. well. um, but yeah, yeah, I would say um, at Western Landowners Alliance, we spend a lot of time talking about trying to operate in what we call the radical center. And I think this is an issue where you often get painted, where there are kind of two distinct sides for or against. And really, I think there are a lot of people in the middle trying to figure out, you know, operating in the gray area, trying to better understand the complexities. And then at this point, now that the ballot has passed, really trying to understand how do we as much as possible minimize any potential negative impacts to um, rural communities Livestock producers, sports people.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments on both sides. I tend to see more science based arguments on one side and more emotional arguments on another side Um, or or vice versa. Sometimes it switches. But I think in terms of the science based arguments for Wolf reintroduction outside of just they belong here, there's precedent, obviously, from the northern rocky states and the Yellowstone reintroduction. A lot of people cite the biological benefits of wolf reintroduction, including, you always hear the term, trophic cascade. These wolves are reintroduced and therefore, they have an effect on their prey. They cause elk and deer to move around more. In turn, the grasslands are less overgrazed. They have this sort of downward cascade of of positive effect. How much of that is uh, informing the, the process and the, you know, the number of wolves and and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that, so Colorado parks and wildlife, in addition to putting in a, a stakeholder advisory group, which I was part of, which was looking at kind of the social and economic impacts and stakeholder opinions and ensuring that was part of the plan also convened a technical working group with really what I would say, you know, world renowned experts biologists folks from the northern Rockies people who really understand wolf reintroduction and management um some of the you know leading scientists around wolf management so I think the plan is going to be from that perspective very much based in science and very much based in the reality of management on the ground as well I will say that thinking about you know wolves in Colorado one thing to think about is that you know Yellowstone National Park in Colorado are very different places. Um, Well, there's also a lot of like more evidence and I'll say I'm, you know, I am not a scientist that studies, um, you know, wildlife or wolves or um, trophic cascades. But from my understanding, there continues to be additional research coming out that's essentially saying that wolves were given credit for a lot of other changes in Yellowstone. So one thing is that actually beavers were being reintroduced and their populations were expanding at the same time and that has a big effect on rivers and ecosystems and so i'd be cautious about giving you know credit to one species for for everything Um, at the same time i also think you know colorado we have um, a different environment ecologically but we also have a lot more people we have a lot of people spread across the state We have a lot of people, even if they're not living in Western Colorado, that are recreating in Western Colorado. We're seeing impacts to ungulates and other wildlife from those increases in recreation. And so not to say that um, the science isn't important, but I think it's also good to kind of recognize that um, Colorado is unique. And I think our... um, kind of the the habitat and the prey base and the volume of people um, that we shouldn't really be expecting it, for example, to look the same as it did in Yellowstone.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, I think, you know, you can also look at in those other, in in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, um, I think a lot of people worry about the prey base and they worry about the effect on ungulates, but my understanding is that elk populations have actually increased in those states since wolf reintroduction. I'm not sure if that's correct, but that's what I've heard.
1: Yeah. Um, well, one thing is that a lot of populations of elk. So we have a lot of elk in Colorado. Um, those populations are determined often by, you know, objectives that are set by the state wildlife agencies. And so depending on how those wildlife agencies are managing those ungulates, you could certainly see an increase. Right. So you can affect that through habitat you can affect ungulate populations through you know often through tags and what kind of hunting tags you have and what kind of opportunities and so um you're right i would say that when you're thinking about impacts on ungulates and wolves it's important to realize that those impacts tend to be localized impacts So you may see overall numbers increasing, but you'll see a change in movement patterns, which could have both positive or negative impacts. You might see Mm -hmm. certain areas where you've had herd declines, but then you might have a different area in the state where you've seen an increase. So um, you also don't have wolves equally distributed across those states living in certain areas. And so I think what we're seeing and what we were talked a lot about actually on the stakeholder advisory group is that we need to recognize that both the positive and negative impacts. But if we're really talking about um, impact-based management, so trying to manage wolves and ungulates, we need to be aware of those localized impacts and need to be both monitoring and measuring for the impacts at that local level and also need to be thinking about kind of solutions um, at more of that local and community level rather than expecting that we're gonna see necessarily like big trends across the whole state.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So the objective of, of the, um, of the ballot initiative, you said the, one of the objective objectives was a self-sustaining population. Do we know what that looks like and how many and where?
1: Um, I would say no. I mean, Colorado parks and wildlife in their management plan, which is certain, which is currently being drafted and will be presented at the end of the year to the wildlife commission. Um, they have some target kind of lower end recovery numbers. So just to be clear, like they are setting numbers, they are not setting population maximums in any way, nor are they deciding because they're being reintroduced on the Western side of the state that they can't move to the East. There's already been, I think some uh, misinformation that has gone out on that. So they've set some kind of target um, base numbers, essentially recovery phases. So they've set kind of a set number for when they will stay as state endangered, when they might move from endangered to threatened, when they could move from threatened to, um, non game species, but they have not, to my knowledge, decided, you know, on a specific, uh, there is no max number and there hasn't been like a very specific, like we must have X number of wolves across a certain area.
0: Yeah. I Well, I'm kind of glad to hear that, that it's sort of open-ended because that's what it needs to be, right? Like it needs to be a science-based experimentation because we don't know exactly what's going to happen, where they're going to go, how well they're going to do, et cetera, and how communities are going to deal with it. So um, I think that's probably a good approach. Uh, You said – so they're federally delisted, but they're still state-listed, endangered.
1: Oh, I should say they were federally relisted during the process. So when the ballot initiative passed
0: okay. it had been
1: delisted, <laughs> they have been relisted and they are now an endangered species under the US Fish and Wildlife Service Endangered Species Act. Within Colorado, okay. wolves in the Northern Rockies in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho are still delisted as a, as a population and are still under state management in those states. But any wolf that is in Colorado, so the pack that is now in North Park, Colorado, is considered an endangered species, both at the federal and state level.
0: I didn't understand that. Okay, that's good to know.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And I want to come back to that pack here (laughs) in a minute. But uh, so, so they would go from, from that status to eventually, hopefully a non game listing, which means not a huntable um, species. But, you know, what, what does that mean in terms of their protection and their status, a non game status?
1: Um, right. So it would be the same status, I guess, as other species in the state that they can't be hunted, but you wouldn't have, um, so if a species is threatened or endangered, you're not allowed to have what is called take. So you wouldn't be able to, um, lethally manage the species. Um, you could have even incidental take, like if someone accidentally were to kill an animal, there could be legal repercussions. So instead they would be managed, um, as a species, so there would not be hunting or trapping, there, no reg- recreational um, public hunting on the species, but they would no longer have that threatened and endangered status, which has those higher protection levels.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I, I'm sure there are uh, plenty of people who would like to be able to hunt them. Um, but, you know, my understanding in reading up on this is that uh, generally there's not a lot of benefit to hunting wolves for management. Um, That's just one argument. But my understanding is that, yes, lethal management is effective in certain cases, but making it a a recreational hunting opportunity doesn't seem to be that effective because they actually will kind of manage their own populations to to an extent.
1: Yeah, I I think I want to say, just to be clear, that there is a distinction between so like lethal control as management and, you know, Regulated public hunting. So I think it is important. Yeah. That that's a distinction. So at Western Lander's lands, we talk a lot about, you know, to successfully reduce conflict, for example, between wolves and livestock, you need what we call the four C's. So those are, you need conflict prevention tools, like well-funded conflict prevention tools that people often call non-lethal tools. Um, so that could be fencing and turbo flattery, carcass management, um, range riding are just kind of some examples of things that um, folks on the ground can do to try to reduce um, conflict there. You also need um, good collaboration between landowners and agencies across communities in order to implement those tools. Um, You need compensation, so when you do have Livestock depredation, you need a way to compensate landowners for those losses and then you need lethal control control as a tool in the toolbox. Um, So if you have a case where you have a pack that is chronically depredating um, animals, a case where you think you, you know, where you have more of those negative impacts, lethal control can be an important tool in the toolbox with these other tools to address those conflicts. So that is separate from, um, a discussion around the potential for, you know, wolves as a game species and being hunted, um, and having a hunting season like they have in some other Western states. And at this point, um, really the recommendation from the stakeholder advisory group was, um, to not be considering that as a decision at this time, um, in the, restoration and management plan that we are a long way from when that decision would need to be made because there won't be any kind of season. Um, there's also, um, disagreement on, you know, right now under the proposition 114, um, canis lupus was actually defined as a non-game species. And so there's discussion of whether it would take, what kind of action it would take to overturn that. And so, um, I would just that was my next we're a long we're a long way from that decision. Um, despite the fact that it feels like it's something that people feel strongly like they want to talk about now. Um, the goal really of Proposition 114 and of the group is to support, you know, the restoration of wolves to be able to manage for potential both negative and positive impacts. And I think um, I think the reason it comes up as a potential management tool is, you know, There are other species like mountain lions and bears where, um, hunting is used to manage population numbers and to, um, both when we think about elk and deer populations and managing those as well as wildlife agencies do, I should say, and also, um, are sometimes, you know, used to manage impacts to people in communities in that case as well.
0: Yeah. No, that that makes sense, and it sounds like a whole other messy political process to uh, even go down that road. But you can't help but think about it. I, I'm out looking for bears uh, this month with a with a rifle tag. Uh, it would be my first black bear, and and if you asked me three or four years ago if I ever want to kill a bear, I would have said no. Why would I? And now I'm kind of interested. They're all over the place. They're good to eat, and and so I'm trying to be open minded. But I'm also, if you ask me if I want to kill a wolf, I'd be like, no, why would I? <laughs> so um.
1: right right and i think the thought is also i mean back to what you were saying about things being based i would say not only in science but also in in knowledge on the ground and indigenous knowledge and traditions in um management that we see over time like i think that in the political landscape i mean things could look a lot different a decade from now 15 years from now um and so you know I, i think it's important to i guess to me to think you know that conversation doesn't need to happen now, needs to happen or maybe should happen at some point. Um, but hopefully like always being informed by by impacts, by management, needs, by science, by knowledge on the ground.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the compensation program and and uh that North Park pack. Um, there have there have been a few predations on livestock up there. And my understanding is they have resulted in compensation. Has there been any other lethal control? Like what's going on with that pack up there?
1: Yeah. So there has not been any lethal control. So again, like this pack of wolves is a, an endangered species both federally and at the state level. So there has not been any lethal action on the wolves taken. Um uh what you have seen is I think the first depredation was in December of um last year. And so it's been a number of cattle. I think a lot of people, at least in Colorado, are aware of Don Gittleson and his ranch, and and he was experiencing the first um, depredations. You also had a a working dog in its kennel. Um, It was a lot quickly, Um, both wildlife services in Colorado Parks and Wildlife, along with volunteers and others have been um, working to try to help landowners in that area on conflict prevention tools. So they went up, they put out what's called turbo flattery, which is essentially Um, an electrified line with a bunch of red flags on it that um, around their pastures um, it works as kind of a scare device for wolves if it's used um, appropriately and not for too long and so there's been non-lethal tools kind of deployed in that area and then my understanding although I you know I don't know the exact details on this is that, yes, they've been working with the landowners around compensation. Some of the depredations have been compensated already. Some are still in the process. And that's under um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife's current game damage compensation program, which also covers compensation for livestock loss to bears and lions. Um, What we were developing as part of the stakeholder advisory group uh, recommendations is trying to look maybe more completely at um, compensation, and so I think what we will see in the plan coming out of Colorado Parks and Wildlife is potentially um, a more robust compensation program for landowners. Right now, I believe that they do pay kind of the fair market value of that animal as kind of a one-to-one, um, so.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. I featured a guy named um, Kurt Holson. You may have come across. Yeah, yeah um, up, in Idaho. up there in Idaho. Yeah. You know him, yeah. Yes. Um, and it sounds like they're having really good results with those non-lethal methods protecting sheep herds up there, which would seem like a pretty vulnerable uh, prey to me. So that's yeah. exciting.
1: Yeah, they have. I think they've had um, they've had good funding behind their work. They've had good collaboration and partnership. They've had time to be able to really kind of figure out what kind of conflict prevention tools work within their operation. Um, and, and I have heard that they've been um, successful. And I think you do have... Success stories um, across the West. People often mention the Black Book Challenge in Montana. There's Madison Valley Ranchlands group that has an incredibly successful carcass management program. Um, there are a lot, you know. It, it's also, I think, what's really important to recognize, especially on the conflict prevention side, is that it takes money and time and labor. Um, none of these are easy, quick solutions. And I think um you know, at Western Landers Alliance, we talk a lot about kind of the importance of ranches staying economically viable, that they're supporting people, they're supporting wildlife in order to do that, in order for the ranches in Western Colorado not to sell out to development. I mean, the development pressure is really intense in a lot of the West, but especially in Western Colorado. I mean, I see it all the time. I talk to people who say like, well, I'm really trying to make it work, but you know, I'm being offered $20 million for my ranch. I'm trying to figure out how to put my kids through college. I want to stay here. I love this. I love the lifestyle. I love the landscape. I love the wildlife, but I have to be able to make it pencil out. And while wolves are one issue in that, I think it can really feel like kind of a, a lightning rod or the straw on the camel's back. Like if you already kind of feel like you're on that, that thin margin or if there's a feeling from folks which there sometimes is in rural communities of like man i'm not even wanted here anymore um you know we're we're not respected people don't want us here and then on top of that there's that kind of land value pressure i think wolves can become i guess getting back to voting yes and no and how people feel i think it can feel like is this the kind of the last thing that pushes me over the edge, and there's concern and fear on that. And and I think the conflict prevention tools, while they can be effective, I think we really don't want to underestimate, I guess, the amount of funding it's going to take to support that, as well as even if you have the funding, you know, is there the labor? Can someone, even if they wanted to hire a range rider on their operation and had the funding to do so, is there someone that wants to, you know, essentially live out on the landscape, um, riding and sleeping with cattle when potentially at this point they could make more money stocking shelves at Walmart? I mean, it, there are certainly those kind of- so Maybe it's private- as well.
0: Yeah, maybe it's like coalitions of, of ranchers in certain areas hiring someone to do that job in, in the whole area, kind of like Kurt does. Yes. Um, real quick about the um, funding, is that, where's that coming from? Obviously that's taxpayer money that's going toward like, let's say a, uh, compensation, right?
1: Yeah. And so my understanding is that that funding currently comes out of the Colorado parks and wildlife's budget. And some of that can come from the general fund and their budget. Um, as a stakeholder advisory group, we also have been looking for, you know, what are maybe some more creative ideas around getting funding put together. Um, there's certainly groups like Defenders of Wildlife and other wildlife advocacy groups that at times will cert- will put a lot of money on the ground for conflict prevention tools. Um, but I think there is across the board, as we look at Wolf Reintroduction and Management in Colorado, I think it's important to realize that it is going to cost a lot of money. Um, and some of that may come from taxpayers out of the general fund. Um, there's also talk of, you know, is would it be possible to set up some kind of endowment fund that could be, you know, launched and put together and come of that. So I think, um, I guess it is important for those of us, whether, you know, whether you voted, I should say, (laughs) if you voted yes for Wolf (laughs) reintroduction in the state, um, not to pin people as yes or no against each other, but you know, I think recognizing that it certainly isn't um isn't free and um, and that we will need to put some money behind it if we want Colorado Parks and Wildlife to be successful.
0: Yeah. Okay, a couple more wolf questions, and then I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll move on. Um, so I have been, as I said, I, I've been hunting public lands quite a bit, looking for elk and bear. Everywhere I go on BLM and national forest land, I encounter cattle. Um, public land grazing, summer grazing, right? Uh, we have ranchers that have these... Uh, the, these rights where they can set their cattle out on public land for the grazing season and then go recover them. Um, has that been part of your conversation? And like, how is wolf reintroduction going to overlap or affect public land grazing?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think and talk about public land grazing because um, a lot in my work. But let me try to so we can talk a little more broadly about that. But if we focus in on uh, the wolf side, I think um, as a stakeholder advisory group, no. I mean, there there was a goal specifically in the ballot. It said, you know, we're not gonna go out and change land use to support wolves. Like we're not going to go out and restrict rights. We're not gonna end grazing. We're not gonna tell people they can't, you know, use their water, like very specifically in there. I don't remember the exact language was kind of like protecting that um, with wolf reintroduction. One thing that came up around um, Grazing in public lands is, you know, conflict prevention tools are are more challenging to use across um, varied landscapes, large landscapes. And so it's easier to protect your cattle on your home pasture than it is when they're out on your allotments. Essentially, range riding is your best tool. Um, there's also some other tools around sheep. But if we're talking about cattle and that. Um, and so, and then there was also some discussion. Although it's not really within Coral Parks and Wildlife's purview, but within our WLA's Working Wild Challenge program, we talk about you know the importance of having the flexibility on your public allotment to be able to manage, for example, to reduce conflict with wolves. So let's say you have a wolf rendezvous site, and it's in one of the you know allotments or parts of your allotment. Could you Mm -hmm. change your rotation during that season as you're grazing it to be able to avoid wolves? Well, maybe you can, maybe the forest service person that you're working with says like, yes, let's reorganize this. But a lot of that is set up around, you know, forage health and landscape health. And maybe you have, you know, lynx habitat on your allotment that you're managing your timing around. And so there's all these factors that are already going into these grazing plans. And the question is, you know, is this another factor that gets considered, and how do we have better, you know, collaboration, partnership, engagement between landowners and the Forest Service or BLM to be able to have the flexibility within that permit to be able to graze to support, you know, reducing conflict with wolves, support other species, wildlife habitat, um, while also, you know, being able to use cattle as a really effective management tool. Um, I mean, I think if we're thinking about grazing as an ecosystem management tool, and I think grazing when done well is one. I mean, grassland ecosystems in these range lands, you know, essentially co-evolved with grazers. I mean, cattle are a really powerful tool for healthy landscapes and grasslands. They also are really important as we talk about the economics of these private lands that are so important to sustaining wildlife and species and providing open space and providing, you know, a lot of the water resources, critical winter habitat and forage, um, you know, those operations are directly, you know, their economics are based on being able to graze cattle on public lands. And so I think there's a strong yeah. economic connection. Um, and then I also think, um, you know, grazing can be a tool that is used for restoration, that's used for management, that's used for fuels reduction, if done well. And I think what we talk a lot about at Western Landowners Alliance is really the need for flexibility with accountability. So allowing ranchers, allowing not only permittees and ranchers, but also, you know, the Forest Service, the BLM agencies to, um, to have enough flexibility to really do adaptive management. To be able to graze in certain ways to benefit both you know to benefit forage to benefit wildlife to reduce those kind of conflicts um especially to be able to adapt your management in the face of a changing west right we've got wildfire we've got drought we have invasive weeds like cheatgrass we have expanding predator populations how do we um manage in that but then at the same time i think the accountability piece is you know how do we have monitoring and are ensuring that with that flexibility kind of comes the accountability of being able to you know that shared focus on keeping lands whole and healthy to make sure that if there are bad actors out there you know they're not able to just go out and put as many cattle out as they want for as long as they want and and destroy Mm -hmm. the rangelands. so um finding that that right balance i think is really important but I think oftentimes, again, like public lands grazing comes up almost like it's a black and white issue. Like, well, I'm either for it or I'm against it. When really what it is, is it's like, you know, how are cattle used? Where are they used under management? um, There's a lot of complexity to it. And then again, how does that management happen across the public private lands? Because, you know, wildlife certainly aren't, you know, stopping at the borders, right? They're utilizing both as the habitat. We need to be able to manage our forests and our watersheds and our um, Rangelands across public, private as well.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly see the complexity there. I mean, I'm a little bit uh, I've got a little bit of a gripe this month just because I'm having trouble finding wildlife in some of these. Areas. I, you know, finding cattle instead of wildlife, and I'm like, oh man, these these cattle are everywhere. It seems like they're kind of displacing some wildlife on public lands and and maybe outcompeting for uh, forage and again, I'm, I'm not very well educated on this, so I'm sure I have some misconceptions, but um, I also, like you said, then I go, well, man, with the value of land, uh, it doesn't, you know, it makes total sense for these ranchers to be able to increase their stock without overgrazing their, their property or having to buy more property, but it also feels like, you know, that that's a private interest benefiting off of public land in some ways, so I don't know, I, I, I have mixed feelings about it, but when you talk about it as a beneficial management tool, um, obviously I'm on board for that. I just, I question sometimes the ubiquitous uh, nature of it. Like there just seems to be cattle all over public lands.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel that way about recreationalists, which I am, right? <laughs> So, I mean, if we want to talk about, you know, displacing ungulates on public land, we should talk about, I mean, I'm an avid mountain biker. I love mountain biking. I also recognize that mountain biking all over public lands, hiking, backpacking, you know, motorized recreation has huge effects on where ungulates are and what they're doing. I think the increases we've seen in recreation on public land since especially upticking with COVID, but even before that has, I mean, had big effects i mean i have ranchers telling me like okay well the first time we had elk on our property was in the 1980s then we've consistently seen you know growing numbers um we have more elk in colorado than montana wyoming and idaho combined i was told by parks and wildlife so there are a wow. lot of elk out there um where are they <laughs> but what i would say is that well i would say that um I mean, I have, I have seen so many times cattle and elk all just mixed together, eating grass together. So I don't see, you know, elks, you know, cattle scaring the elk away. Um, there certainly is, you know, forage competition and we can, I'd love to talk a little bit about this habitat lease um, partnership. Cause I think there's some, yeah. some um, interesting ideas there. I mean, there's certainly landowners, for example, that have de-stocked, their cattle on their private lands by, you know, up to 30%, um, in Wyoming to support big game migrations, um, which obviously has a economic impact to them, but they're trying to figure out how am I, you know, how do I keep healthy grasslands if there's not enough grass for both elk and cattle? How do I do so while supporting both livestock and wildlife, um, while, by remaining economically viable? So that's, a little bit of a side tangent, but I think it is important to, to think about, you know, um, wildlife stewardship on, on private lands and what the cost is and how we, you know, think about um, whether we call it compensation or paying for stewardship or rewarding that kind of proactive conservation. So you have elk that often, a lot of elk in Colorado, essentially winter and eat um, hay and grass on private lands for um, all of the winter. Yeah. And so then those same ranchers, I guess, are grazing cattle out on public lands, but they've been sharing their grass and hay all winter. Um, and I guess I just say, I mean, they're part of the public too. So I think sometimes there's this idea that like, oh, well, ranchers are private, but I as a recreationist are public or, I mean, logging is also public. And so it's really, I mean, designed to be for multi-uses and what I think is valuable. And again, I mean there's ways that it's done well and there's ways that it's done poorly. So I'm not here standing saying like all public grazing is good across the board. What I'm trying to say is that like, I think it's a tool that and a land use, if it is, you know, as a land use that can be really compatible with land health and wildlife. And I would okay, yeah. say the same thing for mining. I wouldn't say the same thing for development. I wouldn't. And so I think if we recognize that the foundations of a lot of like the economic driver that supports wildlife habitat and open space currently in the West, one of the main things is agriculture. And so if we can think rather than thinking like, man, we gotta get rid of these cows, if we can think like, wow, how do we better, you know, support cattle as part of the ecosystem management to support both the people in these rural communities um, and wildlife, like how do we better share these landscapes? I don't see an answer where it's you know where it's one or the other and that it's certainly not a west i want to live in that's one or the other yeah
0: no that's well said i i think um you know i'm certainly i'm certainly not anti-beef anti-rancher i'd be a hypocrite i love cattle um like i said i'm just having a tough month Um, yeah but, uh, but you know i i want to see that healthy management and that uh economic support that you're you're referencing, Um, I guess it's just sort of like, we gotta keep an eye on it, right? So we don't suffer from the tragedy of the commons where people are misusing or overusing um, public lands. And so that's where my concern comes from, but I'm glad to hear you describe it in the way that you did.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of really good land managers at Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service that are, you know, out and permittees that are spending a lot of money on water infrastructure and fencing to really try to manage for whole and healthy landscapes. And I think, I mean, what it, I mean, at Western Landowners Alliance, I should say, you know, over the past decade that I've been working with landowners across the West, I think, you know, most people, most landowners, most ranchers have a strong land ethic, but a land ethic isn't enough on its own. I mean, you really need, you know, you need supportive public policies. You need, you know, resources, financial resources, you need knowledge. You need that to be able to really do good work on the ground. And so, um, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about the land ethic podcast, (laughs) but you know, but I thought you were giving me a free plug. Like there's, you know, there is, um, you know, we call those kind of like the foundations of stewardship. And at Western Landowners Alliance, we're looking at ways to improve those, right? How do we make public policies supportive of, you know, of landowners that whose goal is a whole and healthy West that supports people and wildlife. And so you're right. I mean, we need that accountability piece. And one thing I will say, I'll just throw out that we have a pilot in Arizona, New Mexico that's called joint cooperative monitoring. And it's with the Forest Service. And they have a new technology called Survey123, but what's nice is it's on a phone or an iPad, and it can be used by, um, it could be used by you know students from a university, it could be used by forest service range staff, or by the permittees themselves, to actually be going out, you know, taking pictures, doing monitoring. Um, it gets uploaded into a database that then can be shared. And so both it provides this kind of, maybe something on the accountability side, right? If someone's like, well, I don't know, what's really going on up there? and how does that range look well here here's monitoring data like look at how healthy this rangeland is look at all the success they've had around this riparian area um it also provides i think you know a better way to have that kind of collaboration between the permittees and between the forest service to add capacity to what is often an underfunded and understaffed agency to do that kind of monitoring yeah um, And so I think we're seeing success. And I also think then that the data that you collect, which is really a positive thing about monitoring, is that that can then kind of key into, you know, again, that adaptive management. Like if there's the flexibility for the agency and permittee to be able to say like, well, this doesn't look as good because, you know, we're really seeing a drought. How could we change the rotation of the grazing or how could we change numbers or timing on this land to better address um, maybe an issue that they're not liking to see that they'd like to like to change. So, um, I'm excited about that as a pilot that we have going in Arizona and New Mexico and thinking about how that might help kind of, um, get more monitoring on the ground and continue to build much needed kind of trust and relationships between, um, agencies and permittees.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I I love those kinds of things like more citizen science based projects. I use an app for plant identification, uh, called iNaturalist. Yes. And i love it it's like built this amazing database of uh plant communities across the u.s probably across the world i'm sure um and it just works off of people curious people being like what's this plant and they're able to compile so much data and it's like uh i don't know it's just a a really kind of successful science uh project that's just based on people's curiosity of of plants and so um i think that's really cool um, did you have other thoughts on the um, habitat lease partnership? I want to make sure we talk about that. Yeah. In Wyoming. Uh,
1: yeah. I would just say that, I mean, the idea yeah. behind it, and I think I've kind of talked about this as kind of this idea that, you know, ranching as a business is can be very compatible with wildlife. Um, and I mean, that's why you often see elk and deer and pronghorn and turkeys all on pastures, on ranches, on private lands. Um, yep. You know, they find good habitat there. Um, you know, they, sometimes I actually think it's because you find a lot less people there when it comes down to, as I was mentioning, you know, more people on the land and recreation impacts. Um, and at the same time, you have ranchers that really need to be able to make a living. And so if you have, for example, too many elk competing with livestock, and I mentioned that people are, you know, destocking their livestock because they're leaving forage for elk. Um, you talk, some people are saying like, well, I used to do, you know, three hay cuts. Now I do two and I leave the third for, um, elk but Hmm. with elk populations kind of growing in many places and then I also think you do see more elk and I think I failed to finish this story but it was actually a rancher kind of in your area that was talking about they didn't used to have elk now they've seen more and what I would say is now maybe they have you know 200 elk sitting on their center pivot field and the elk used to leave um essentially leave for calving spend a lot of kind of the summer into the fall and then maybe come back onto the private ranch when you saw increases in hunter activity um now they will see elk that essentially just stay um they have a lot more people up on the land the public land kind of high above the the ranch and elk are calving and they're hanging out and they're thinking like well it's quiet here this is great habitat why don't i like i don't really want to be up there with (laughs) <laughs> with all those people. Um, and so with that, I would just say, you know, you have that kind of increased pressure on those lands. And so a habitat lease is essentially designed to reimburse the landowner or support the landowner um, for the cost of sustaining that wildlife. Um, that's especially when supporting that wildlife kind of comes at the expense of their ability to stay in business. So it's it's really trying to enable mm-hmm. them to be able to, to both support livestock and wildlife. Um, And the partnership in wyoming um it's primarily through what is a united states department of agriculture program called the grasslands conservation reserve program so grassland crp it's called um it's a federal program that really is recognizing the value of maintaining grassland ecosystems and habitat but also recognizing that you can have livestock grazing that's compatible with that and so there is um It essentially is paying ranchers for these 10 to 15 year contracts to maintain these healthy grasslands. um, Using specific grazing practices um, and maintaining that, and so I would say the G the grassland CRP is kind of a federal version of a habitat lease and in the state of Wyoming the USDA is partnering with Wyoming um to make it as well as some other state support available to landowners in, specifically in areas of big game migrations so it's trying to get more landowners signed up for these 10 to 15 year contracts paid to maintain those healthy grasslands and they're focusing on their what they've identified as you know critical habitat in these big game migrations so um it's a it's a awesome. federal state partnership um that's again kind of looking at how do we you know how do we support landowners that are already proactively providing quality habitat to, in this case, big game, but certainly, you know, there are examples of it in other places and it could be used to support imperiled species, non-game species, all sorts of different wildlife.
0: I love that. Yeah. The, the CRP has been a an incredibly successful program from what I understand, and and that's part of the farm bill or no?
1: Yes, it is. So it's a conservation title program under the farm bill.
0: Okay, awesome. I've covered that in, in a previous podcast, but it's a little it's all a little blurry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so tell me a little bit more here while we wrap up about Western Landowners Alliance. And um, I guess what you guys do and, and um, who makes up your organization? Yeah. I should have asked this up no, front, that's okay. the wolves.
1: <laughs> I know, you ju- you jumped right in, that's that's great. Um, yeah, so again, um, we're a landowner-led, west-wide organization. We work across the American West. Um, our focus is really on whole and healthy landscapes. It's on sustaining working lands, both public and private working lands, um, connected landscapes and native species, um, hence why we're talking about a lot of those things today. Um, So we're really a network of landowners, managers, as well as partners that are dedicated to keeping working lands of the West whole and healthy, um, ensuring that lands can both support people and wildlife. Um, And I just say, you know, I mentioned kind of the the radical center. I mean, our members span the full political spectrum um, and really come from all walks of life. I think the main thing we agree on is the importance of caring for the land. And so we're not a blue or red group, an urban rural group, like we're, we really try to come kind of from the center and really be thinking about win-win solutions, practical solutions to, um, to support the working lands of the West. Um, and so I mentioned, I mean, we have, um, I, I'm WA's programs director. I manage staff and programming across the West. Um, we have staff in New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and Northern California right now. Wow. Um, and though we're still small, I think we we often talk about kind of we're, um, I guess, boxing above our weight class. Um, we do a lot of work on federal policy. We have a policy director in Washington, D.C. who's gearing up. We talked about the Farm Bill to, to think about how do we make the Farm Bill work better for the West? Um, how do we make it work for landowners in the West? How do we make it support you know stewardship and conservation work in Western states? Um, We work on state policy work. We have a state policy coordinator. Um, We have some program staff focused on, um, we have a water program where we're working with landowners and partner organizations and really trying to develop constructive solutions to meet the West's intensifying water crisis. Our focus right now is in the Colorado River Basin. Um, While we've worked on water kind of as part of upland management and wildlife and working lands economics. I would say right now we're in the stage of, of really putting a lot more capacity and energy behind our water work and building that program. Um, and then another nice. of the programs that I mentioned was this working wild challenge program, which has to do with the habitat lease program that I mentioned and, uh, wolves and, you know, how do we better share landscapes between people and wildlife?
0: And uh women in ranching, right? Is that still a yes. program of yours?
1: Well, interestingly and excitingly, women in ranching was a program of ours until very recently. Um, Amber Smith, who is now their new executive director, um, WA was able to support women in ranching and actually launching into their own nonprofit. So oh. um, that happened this summer. So yes, um, we for a number of years were supporting a program, um Uh, A woman led program, really trying to focus on supporting women, educating them, inspiring them, connecting them, recognizing the importance of their leadership on the land. And, um, yes, and now it is its own nonprofit, which I think is tremendously exciting as the previous director of that program to see both the kind of the way that it is gaining traction and the power behind that as an organization. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: And a little less work on your plate.
1: Yes, that's true too. <laughs> yep. Um, yes. Amber is there is now, uh, and their board is now taking on, taking on the full brunt of it. So yep, <laughs> it's
0: good. Great. Um, and then I know that you, you are involved with some other organizations as well, right? I've got, um, uh... Central Colorado Conservancy written down here. Anything else that you're involved with?
1: Yeah, so I am currently serving as the board president of the Central Colorado Conservancy, and we're based in Salida, Colorado, which is where I live. Um, But we serve a six-county region in Central Colorado. Um, It's a regional land trust focused on really protecting lands and waters and the quality of life of Central Colorado, recognizing that it's kind of in the face of tremendous pressure and rapid growth right now. Um, And so we do conservation easements. We have some really cool ag related programs as well as some really interesting river and wetland restoration work. Um, And so that's something that um, I love. I love dedicating my time and energy to um, my backyard as well as across the West. Um, And then I am also on the Center for Collaborative Conservation, which is part of the Colorado State University. I am on their advisory board as well. Okay, yeah,
0: Man, um, I'll let you go here. I, I've taken enough of your time, but I, uh, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I appreciate the nuance and the complexity of these issues and, um, and just the way you guys are approaching this stuff. So uh, I think people can support you through donations, right? Yeah. And other ways.
1: Yeah, I would just say, first of all, join us. So membership's free. Um, Western Landowners Alliance, get on our website, um, join us, become a member. Um, We're a membership organization. Our members are landowners and managers, but it's also partners, supporters, people from not only across the West, but across the world who really care about, you know, whole and healthy landscapes and, and working, you know, solutions oriented thinking in that kind of radical center space. So first off, join us. Um, it also really helps in our power in terms of our policy work, um, in federal and state policy. So love to have you do that. We also have an incredible, um, I'm super proud of podcast. Um, we have a podcast. (laughs) We also have a magazine. So, um, we have a biannual magazine that is in print. Um, our next issue is due to hit print. Actually, I think next week it's called on land. Um, there's, a print magazine you can subscribe to, but also just an incredible, our communications director, Lewis Wertz has put together an incredible, um, you know, set of digital articles and really cool work there too. Um, we have our online podcast, um, and then we're actually launching in partnership with the Montana state university extension of new podcast called the working wild university. Um, that will be coming out the first season in October. And if you're interested in wolves across the West, that will be the topic of the first season. So Dylan, I'll make sure that, uh, that you know about that. Um, so I think that's going to be awesome. So yeah, we'd love to have you join, um, check us out on our website. And of course I'm, you'll find my email, um, on our website as well. So if anyone has additional questions for me about anything I've said today or the work that we're doing, I'm always available to answer those questions as well.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Hallie. This has been really great. I learned a lot. And uh, I hope that people kind of have a better understanding of what's what's happening out here, especially around the wolf issue.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Dylan. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today.
0: Likewise. Thanks.